Good morning, church family. I'm recording this for Easter Sunday 2020 because on that Sunday we're not able to gather together for the first time in the history of Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, historically on Resurrection Sunday we have gathered in this place and we have worshipped our risen Savior. And yet this morning we can't do that due to the coronavirus pandemic. And yet that doesn't change the fact at all that Jesus still did rise from the dead. And that we are to worship him and rejoice in him always. And so this, this Sunday morning what I'd like to do is simply open up a, a text of scripture for you. Uh, that will draw us to rejoice in our Lord and to worship him. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3-7 through 7 is what I want to open up and and, and this passage speaks about how the resurrection of Jesus from the dead gives us hope and gives us reason to rejoice. And, and even though our world is facing a global pandemic, and, and even though some of you may be out of a job and out of income for a while, and, and even though your, your family may not be able to gather together after uh, church celebration, which can't be together either, Peter gives us reason to rejoice in the Lord. L- listen to what Peter says. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. John Newton, the the former slave trader who turned pastor in the 1700s, once told a story. He said this, Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate. And on his way, his carriage should break down a mile before the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him to be if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering all that remaining mile, saying, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. Now we understand clearly why he would be thought to be so foolish, right? To, to cry about a broken carriage when you're within a day of inheriting a large estate that's worth hundreds of times more than that carriage, would would seem to be utterly, absolutely ridiculous to us. And yet, how often do our lives demonstrate the same foolishness? See, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have an inheritance awaiting for us in heaven, which is far greater and far more valuable and far more lovely than any estate that has ever resided here upon the earth. Yet we can easily complain and grumble or blubber, as John Newton says, at the trials and difficulties in our life on the way to obtain our inheritance. And and so you think about, what should this man have done when his carriage broke down? Right? He should have gladly left it aside the road and and should have walked along that road whistling a a song of joy as he went to New York, as, as, as he envisioned gaining this inheritance. In fact, we could even see him, right, singing this little song. Hi-ho, hi-ho, 
To New York I go, I have a big inheritance, hi-ho, 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 I'm walking rather slow, I'll gladly walk, it is my lot, hi-ho, 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 hi-ho. And we can see this man doing this his whole way to New York. And we wouldn't see him being foolish at all. And none of us would say, hey, hey buddy, you're, you can't leave your carriage beside the side of the road like that. Uh, aren't you worried about maybe someone's going to take it? Or aren't you worried about repairing it? No, we wouldn't consider his ways even presumptuous because he sees the big picture. He's about to go to New York. He's about to inherit the, this large estate that he has. And, and in his chariot, doesn't matter. Because in the grand scheme of things... His carriage doesn't matter. He has this inheritance waiting for him, and it's fully reasonable for him to have a a happy heart as he walked the streets. Now, this little illustration is the message of our text. And the flow of our text is just like the man on the way to New York to collect his inheritance. In verses 3 through 5, Peter is describing the inheritance that awaits us in heaven. And in verses 6 and 7, we see the broken carriage, the the temporary trials that have come upon us in this life. And in this sense, this this passage for us this morning is a microcosm of 1 Peter, which teaches us to suffer now and glory later. We see the the suffering in verses 6 and 7, and we see the glory in verses 3 through 5. The the suffering is now for a little while, as he says in verse 6, and the glory will be revealed in the last time, that is, later. Now, the unique aspect of these verses is that that Peter gives us clear directions to our attitudes that we should have towards these things. And they should be a perspective of worship and joy and happiness. In fact, look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are words of worship and joy, giving praise and honor and glory. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 6 says this. In this you rejoice. These are words of, of happiness that express our delight of our souls. This morning, I want to give you two points. I want to speak first about how we should rejoice in our salvation. And second, I want to talk about how we should rejoice in our suffering. And our salvation is God-given. It's what the first part of verse 3 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again. This is God's great mercy to us. See, when we have a salvation that that is in Jesus, it's not because of us. In fact, if it's because of us, the thing that we earned is death, Romans 6.23. But but the second part of Romans 6.23 explains the gift. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you're a child of God today, it's only because of His great mercy towards you. You didn't do anything to deserve your salvation. You didn't work for your salvation. It was all of God. He gave it to you according to his great mercy as he caused us to be born again. Great is is, is large and vast. And if you truly would do some soul work in your heart, you you would see just how wicked and corrupt you are. If if you've discovered even deeply the the moral compass of your soul, you you might clearly understand how, how wicked your heart is. And how many crimes and sins you've committed, just even in your heart. You have secret sins that nobody knows about except God. God knows it all. And yet the message of Christianity is that he has still saved us. 
He still has shown us great mercy by His grace. Look at what He says. He says, He has caused us to be born again. This born again phrase often gets a bad rap in the Christian world. People said, are you one of those born again Christians? It gets a bad rap because people don't understand the term or maybe they've had a bad experience with someone who said that they were, were born again. Right? And you might despise all the caricatures of, of what that means, but don't despise the term born again because it's important in Scripture and even Jesus spoke about it. Jesus spoke about it to Nicodemus and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That is, there must be this radical change within our lives at some point if we're ever to see the kingdom of God. And, it, and it's so radical that Jesus describes as being born again or, or born anew or like, like changed entirely. And unless you're born again, you cannot see the, the, the kingdom of God. See, God needs to act in your life. And God needs to, to, to show change your life that you see and experience something you've never seen experienced before. And the new birth is necessary. And, and if you notice, it's God who causes us to be born again. Just like Jesus, when he spoke with Nicodemus, described the, this process of being born again like the wind. The Spirit blows where it will. And, and where it blows, it, it just goes as he wishes. And you don't know where it comes from and where it goes. And you can't tell where the wind blows. And you can't direct it where it blows. So it is with the Spirit of God when it comes upon you. It's only by the will of God that you're born again. And when God creates in you a, a new creation and you are different, it's He who does it. That is, it is it's God who does it. It is God-given. And that's why we bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that gave me my salvation. He's the one that gives you your salvation. He's given us our ultimate gift. It is God-given. But it's our salvation also that gives us hope. Look at verse 3. He said that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is, is core to our beliefs as Christians. We believe that God is the one who came in the flesh. We believe that it's He who died upon the cross. It is He who is buried. It is He who has risen again from the dead. And Peter said it's through that resurrection that we have a living hope. As Christ was raised from the dead, so we too hope that we also will raise from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And that means that if you are in Christ, and if indeed God has changed you and transformed you, doing a work, you have a hope of being raised from the dead. And your hope is beyond this life. Your hope is in the life to come. Think about back that illustration about the man whose carriage broke along the way. You have a hope of an amazing inheritance. That's an inheritance of better things to come. These are the things of heaven. And, and Randy Alcorn gives a great illustration of what it means. He said, when I anticipate my first glimpse of heaven... I remember the first time I went snorkeling. I saw countless fish of every shape, size, and color. And just when I thought I'd seen the most beautiful fish, along came another, even more striking. Etched in my memory is a certain sound, a sound of gas going through my rubber snorkel as my eyes were open to that breathtaking underwater world. I imagine that our first glimpse of heaven will cause us to similarly gasp in amazement and delight. That first gasp will likely be followed by many more as we continually encounter new sights in that endlessly wonderful place. 
And that will be just the beginning. Because we will not see our real eternal home, the new earth, until after the resurrection of the dead. And it will be far better than anything that we've seen. So, so look out the window. Take a walk. Talk with your friend. Use your God-given skills to paint or draw or build a shed or write a book. But imagine it, all of it, in its original condition. The happy dog with the wagging tail, not the snarling beast beaten and starved. The flowers unwilted, the grass undying, the blue sky without pollution. People smiling and joyful, not angry, depressed, and empty. If you're not in a particularly beautiful place, close your eyes and envision the most beautiful place you've ever been. Complete with palm trees, raging rivers, jagged mountains, waterfalls, or snowdrifts. Think of family or, or friends who love Jesus and who are with Him now. Picture them with you walking together in this place. All of you have powerful bodies, stronger than that of an Olympic decathlete. You're laughing and talking and playing and reminiscing. You reach up to a tree and pick an apple and orange. You take a bite and it's so sweet that it's startling. You've never tasted anything so good. Now you see something coming towards you. It's Jesus with a big smile on his face. You fall to your knees in worship. He pulls you up and embraces you. And at last, you're with the person you were made for in the place you were made to be. Everywhere you go will be new people and places to enjoy, new things to discover. And what's that? You smell a feast. There's a party ahead and you're invited. There's exploration and work to be done and you can't wait to get started. And this is the hope of, of real life that awaits for us in heaven as we obtain our inheritance, as Peter describes in verse 4, which is really our next point. Your salvation is God-given in verse 3. Your salvation brings hope. And then thirdly, your inheritance is perfect. Peter writes that we receive an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. We see here three descriptions of our inheritance that all, all look forward to what heaven will be like. And notice they're all in the negatives. They are imperishable, undefiled, unfading. That's how, how the Bible often describes heaven, using negatives. Revelation 21, no longer any death, no longer any mourning, nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination or lying shall ever come into it. And the reason why the Bible uses these negatives to describe heaven is because there's simply no way to describe it with positives. He describes it with negatives. He says the inheritance we have is, is imperishable. That is, it never breaks. Rust never gets to it. The moth never eats it. I remember as a little boy um, seeing these plastic combs with the word unbreakable on them. And I remember as a little boy trying to bend them and bend them and bend them until they broke. And it took a long time, a, a much effort of bending. And finally, finally, after a long time, I would break it. Well, in heaven, those combs that say imperishable or in, indeed be imperishable because our inheritance will not break. Uh, secondly, our inheritance is undefiled. That is, there's no impurity in heaven. Everybody inside has been sanctified through the blood of Christ. A and outside of heaven are the, the sorcerers, the, the immoral persons, and the murderers, and the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying, Revelation 22, verse 15. But those who are inside have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. In heaven, there'll be no sin. In heaven, we won't experience the deeds of the flesh that Paul speaks about in, in Galatians 5. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, and, and the like. We won't experience conflicts with each other. It'll be safe to walk anywhere in the city. There'll be no crime-laden areas. All will be harmonious, and all will be at peace. There'll be nothing to clean. No vacuum cleaners. No mops will be needed. 
No dust rags or carpet cleaners. The streets of gold will never get dirty or dusty. The pearly gates will never need cleaning. The walls to the city of beautiful jewels and precious stones will shine brilliantly forever. Our inheritance is undefiled. It's, it's also unfading. I, I remember in our home, we used to have this couch, which was seated in our living room right where the sun would come in. And as a result of it, the couch faded away. When, when you pulled aside one of those, those cushions, you could see the part that was uh, sun faded. And you could see the parts back to what the original color of the couch used to be. And it's, it's true of many things here on the earth. And, and through the years, the, your, your paint on your house fades. Your blue jeans fade. The blacktop on your driveway soon becomes a gray top. Your vitality drips away in later years. But that's not the case in heaven. A thousand years there, everything in heaven will be as bright and clean and brilliant and beautiful as it was the day it was created, as it was the day you entered. Its beauties will be forever. And when you, when you put all these things together, you can say, wow, the inheritance that we are to receive is perfect. There's, there's nothing wrong of anything that awaits us in heaven. It's more than we could ever hope for. It is far more glorious. As our inheritance is perfect. Not only is our salvation God-given, not only does it bring hope, not only is it perfect, it's also guaranteed. At the end of verse 4, we read that our inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Other translation says it's reserved in heaven for you. We reserve many things in this life. We reserve tables at the restaurant. We reserve seats at the theater. We reserve spots on the airplane. We reserve uh, cabins at the resort. We reserve cars at the airport and shelters in the park and rooms at the hotel. But if you're trusting in Jesus, he has reserved a room for you in heaven. It's waiting for your arrival. It's clean. It's all prepared. It's just waiting for you to come. And when you come and arrive at this inheritance you are to receive... God will check the Lamb's Book of Life, see if your name is written there, and if your name is there, you'll be escorted into this room which you'll be. It's more lovely than any room that you have ever experienced before. In fact, it's a, it's a perfect room. You know, in this life, there are times we need to break our reservation. If you've got tickets to the ball game and your, your child is sick, you forfeit the tickets or you give them to your friend. Or if you uh, have room reservations and your car breaks down and you just can't quite get there to the hotel, you cancel your reservations. If there's a worldwide pandemic, you, you cancel your trip to the shore or you, you cancel your tickets to March Madness or your, your plane trip to Florida. Those sorts of things are canceled. But you never need to worry about your heavenly reservation being canceled. In fact, look at verse 5. It says, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to reveal at the last time. See, God is more than just a hotel lobby attendant just waiting for you to come into the lobby of the hotel to usher you to your room. No, God's much more active than that. He's not only waiting at the hotel. He is out there actively guarding and protecting you so it will bring you into the hotel. That is, God has His arms around you and ultimately will bring you into His inheritance. He's got a grip on you that will, will never let go. Jesus said, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. John ten twenty eight. And Peter even said this at the end of his epistle. He said, chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is, after you have suffered, God is going to bring you in and keep you in. 
See, people make guarantees in this life, but there's nothing like the guarantee of verse 5 that God will bring you in on that day of salvation. It comes, he guards us through faith. See, it's not as if we just go and live how we please and then God protects us. On the contrary, right? We, we must believe and trust in Christ. As we believe and trust in Him, He is carrying us along into that eternal inheritance. So I, I just say this, church family, this Easter morning, rejoice in your salvation. It's what Peter speaks about here in verses 3 through 5, how great our salvation is and how we need to rejoice and we need to worship. But second, verses 6 and 7, I want you to rejoice in your sufferings. Because this is, this is really where the, the punch comes of the message this morning. See, it's one thing to rejoice when, when things go well with you. People in the world rejoice when that happens. right? When they, they get a raise or, or something good happens to them. Of course, they rejoice. But it's another thing entirely when things aren't going well and you rejoice. See, when your team's winning, it's easy to cheer. And when the stock market goes up, it's easy to be happy. When new customers are coming into your shop, it's easy to be happy. And it's easy to rejoice at those things. But when your team is losing, it's more difficult. And when the stock market's declining and your IRA goes down or your investment advisor and people are losing their money. It's hard to rejoice in those days. And when there's a worldwide pandemic that's striking one way or another, it's difficult to rejoice. But Christians are called to be different. We're called to rejoice at all times. As 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says, rejoice always. And always means in good times and in bad times. See, the glories of our future inheritance ought to give us enough reason to rejoice through our trials. We see this in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is the whole point, is to to rejoice in your suffering. Now, I I want you to notice here, the second point is an exhortation to rejoice in your sufferings. But but it's not a command of the text. Notice, though, that in in verse 6, it's an observation that, that Peter made to those to whom he was writing. Through all these various trials... We see that the Christians were rejoicing. And we see this oftentimes in the Bible. The Bible puts forth many examples of people going through trials and yet rejoicing in the midst of them. At the end of Habakkuk's prophecy, we hear his perspective. He'd received word of the Lord that the Chaldeans were going to come and they're going to destroy Jerusalem and they're going to destroy Israel. And it would be similar today to, to, to God telling us that the coronavirus is going to be a lot bigger than we thought it was. It was going to mutate, and it was going to begin killing half of the people that it infected. And the result, there would be worldwide chaos and famine and much suffering. And that's what Habakkuk was hearing, as these Chaldeans would come and, and destroy his city. And yet Habakkuk found reason to rejoice. He said, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Listen to these incredible words, Habakkuk three seventeen and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock will be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. There was taking joy in God even amidst a world that's crumbling. Paul even said that. He said, 2 Corinthians 6.10, he speaks about how we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And that's what God calls all of us to do. We're called to rejoice in our sufferings. Now, it's not that we're called to rejoice because we love our sufferings so much. Rather, he's telling us to rejoice because of what our sufferings do for us. 
See, the message of Peter in first one is that in verse one is that we have such a great inheritance awaiting for us that any sufferings we experience don't even compare with the glories that are to come. And, and, and we understand that picture. We understand that picture from marriage. Uh, you remember when the, the Bible tells a story about Jacob meeting Rachel? It was love at first sight. And Jacob had come to serve Rachel's father, Laban. And Laban said, what should your wages be? And he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And we read in Genesis twenty nine twenty, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. And that's what our text is talking about. Jacob's affection for Rachel was so great that seven years of labor seemed like, like just a few days. Jacob's work wasn't easy work. It was hard labor out there with 30 sheep. Yet his, his future hope of a marriage made all his present toil seem easy as he looked forward to the day in which he'd take Rachel's hand in marriage. And every Christian right, ought to have that perspective that this day we can endure because of that day. And so we ought to have two days on our calendar. We ought to have this day and that day. And we ought to live this day in light of that day. And with a proper perspective of the wonders of salvation, there ought to be nothing in this present life that, that should thwart us from rejoicing, glorifying the Lord. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I say the glory that awaits us is amazing. And when you put the sufferings of the present world on one side of the scale and the glory that is revealed to us on the other side of the scale, there's no comparison. The future glory far outweighs the present sufferings. There is is no comparison. This is what Jesus communicated um, in, in Matthew 13 when he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, who went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. And when you find treasure, it's worth all that you have to get that treasure. And when you find the pearl of great value, you're willing to sell everything to get it. And if you put the treasure on one side of the scale and you put your possessions on the other side of the scale, you see there's no comparison. The, the treasure is far more valuable for you. And you, you'll gladly give up everything for that treasure. You, you'll say as Peter did, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. See, and the message here is the same, right? But the future glory is so great that the trials of earth ought to seem hardly anything at all. In fact, it's even possible to rejoice in the most distressing of circumstances when Peter and the apostles were flogged in order not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 5 verse 31 says they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer for his name. Or consider the example of those early Christians. Hebrews 10 verse 34 says, You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Knowing that you have for yourselves a possession, a better possession, and a lasting one. Now, we don't know why these people lost their property. It seems as if the government was coming down on them for some reason. Perhaps it was because they didn't worship the false gods, as many early Christians were persecuted for. But they were joyful when others came and took their property. And it wasn't because they didn't need their houses, or because their houses were small, or because their afflictions were so easy. No, the joy came because they had something better. They had a a better possession. 
that they would have. And they knew that their inheritance would be a lasting one. So they gladly gave up their own property. And finally, even Jesus modeled this. It says in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, he had his gaze beyond this present life to the joy set before him. And with such a perspective, Jesus was willing to endure the cross. And if you look again at verse 6, you'll see that the various trials come upon us are, are only for a little while. See, in comparison with eternity, everything is a little while. I mean, what are a few years of suffering? In the grand scheme of things, it's really nothing. Many of you are familiar with the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. In 1967, she had a, a diving accident that left her a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. And, and the suffering and pain that she has experienced has been incredible. And it's been 53 years of pain and suffering that she has experienced. And yet... She actually has come to rejoice in her sufferings. 35 years after her accident, she wrote a book entitled The God I Love. In that book, she reveals how great her suffering was that she experienced as a result of being unable to move her body. Yet, she also revealed the perspective of her sufferings. Listen to what she said. She prayed a prayer. She said, Oh, thank you, thank you, oh God, for this wheelchair, I prayed. By tasting hell in this life, I've been driven to think seriously about what faces me in the next. This paralysis is my greatest mercy. And as her mother's health deteriorated, Johnny was able to say, Mom, our suffering has taught us something, taught you something. Our afflictions have shown us that something cosmic is at stake. And just five minutes of heaven, I promise you, will make up for everything. It will atone for all. See, she's got the message of 1 Peter. We suffer now and the glory comes later. And in the sufferings now, we ought to rejoice because of the glories that will come later. Because the glories that are coming later are far greater than anything that we see and experience now. And are far easily worth the sufferings that we will endure. And I love the way that Johnny says it. She says, something cosmic is at stake. And that's what Peter's saying in verses 6 and 7. In our sufferings, something cosmic is at stake. And these trials come with a purpose. Verse 7. So that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose in our sufferings is ultimately for the glory of God. As we face these trials, they are proof of our faith. And as our faith continues steadfast without wavering, through these trials, God is, is glorified. In fact, that's the, the point at the end of verse 7, that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That at the end of your sufferings, you may give glory to God. And that's exactly what, what Job experienced. Right? When, when Satan came into the presence of the Lord from roaming about on the earth, the Lord brought Job to Satan's attention and said, Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, blameless and an upright man, fearing God and turning from evil. And and Satan said, well, he does that only because you bless him. And God said, right, Satan, if you think that's so, then you can afflict him. Just don't hurt him. And so Job experiences the trial of losing his ten children and all his wealth in one day. And Job responds, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the writer comments, 
Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. See, see, Job's ultimate response was a proof of his faith. Ultimately, he gave glory to God because he was shown to be worthy of our worship. It's because when we continue to, to worship when things aren't going so well, it demonstrates that we have this great faith in him. Right? And even Job, a second test came upon Job, but he lost his health. And his response was the same. He refused to curse God. Rather, as 1 Peter 4 verse 9 says, he entrusts himself to a faithful creator in doing what's right in the same way that Jesus did. God used Job to teach Satan a lesson about faith. And those who have faith in the Lord will continue to rejoice and worship the Lord, even when experiencing difficulties in this life. And this lesson repeated over and over and over again, as the people of God place their hope in God through the sufferings of this world. So when the suffering comes upon you, realize there's something cosmic is at stake. You have the opportunity to glorify God in a special way. You have the opportunity to demonstrate to him says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be a king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. And it's your faith is demonstrated to be genuine. It will be revealed someday as the riches of the glory of his inheritance. In fact, that's the point in the middle of verse 7. He says that our faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. Your faith and trust in the Lord rejoices even in the sufferings because they are worth more. Your faith and trust is worth more than the biggest purest hunk of gold ever discovered upon the earth because it's the means through which we enter heaven. It's the ticket through which we get there. So as we trust in the Lord, the sacrifice of son, we're purified from our sins and made holy and worthy to enter into his glory, right? So my, my question to you this morning, church family, is do you see the glories of heaven that Jesus purchased for us through the resurrection from the dead? Because if you see them, it will help you endure today. I right, close with one final illustration. In 1952, Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, and she determined to swim all the way to the shore of mainland California. She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways, And that morning, the weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats that accompanied her along the way. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in the boat alongside told her that she was coming close, that she could make it. And finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. And it wasn't until she was in the boat that she discovered the shore was less than half a mile away. And in a news conference the next day, she said this, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And in fact, even two months later, she was able to swim from Catalina Island to the shores of California through the same sort of fog as she kept her goal in mind. If I could have seen the shore, I could have made it. So for us here this Easter morning, 2020, the coronavirus has prevented us from meeting together. But let's not lose sight of the big picture of what it is that we believe and embrace the church. 
We have this great inheritance that's awaiting for us. And all the suffering and trials that we may experience, all the money we may lose because we aren't employed in our job, all the loneliness we may experience because we're not with our family, with our friends, or with our church. Listen, all these losses will not compare with the glories of our inheritance that we will receive through faith in the resurrection. And so, church family, I just encourage you, right, to, to press on. Press on through this coronavirus and, and, and realize that the suffering is now and the glory is later. So let's rejoice through it all.